0: Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm so glad that you're tuning in today. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a spiritual seeker of some kind and you're curious about those big questions in life like, what are we doing here? Is this all there is? What happens after we die? You know, the big questions, all of those things. You're looking for answers. I guess, is is the main point. And maybe you've been through a few dark nights of the soul or times of grief and challenges. And if you're human, which if you're listening to this, you probably are, then I know you've definitely gone through a lot of these things. And what I think is interesting in a lot of the conversations that I like to have is how you handle these events that makes the difference. And I think these are Are interesting things to talk about. So I'm excited to welcome my guest today, Susan Pierce, and she joins me from Australia to talk about her experiences and her spiritual journey that she shares in her book, Spiritually Loose, Uncover the Path to Your Divine Life. And Susan is a business thought leader, and she's passionate about conscious leadership. And for over two decades, she's introduced her leadership techniques into businesses nationally and internationally, helping them achieve high performance. And she's also a regular keynote speaker and has been interviewed and appeared on many TV shows, podcasts like my own humble podcast here, uh, newspapers, magazines, and documentaries. You can find her online at SusanPierce.com, that's P-E-A-R-S-E. So I'm happy that she can talk to me today about her spiritual journey, because I I love to chat about this. So Susan, welcome to my humble podcast here today.
1: Hi, Diane and everyone. It's great to be here.
0: It's so cool to connect uh, over the globe and oceans, and, and here we are. I just... I love being able to to do this. It's so cool. It's fantastic. <laughs> talk, to, talk to people so far away. But what I, I love about chatting with you know people in d- different countries, I think we're all so similar, right? We're more alike than we are different. So I, I love to hear people share their stories. And you sharing sh- your story about your spiritual journey and your path in the book, Spiritually Loose, I think is so relatable. And I related to it personally. Uh, as as I've been reading through it, a lot of what you've been through, and I think a lot of the readers and a lot of listeners today will relate as well. So I want to kind of just start from the beginning, and your your growing up and your childhood, and you know, my introduction to spirituality and religion actually is kind of similar to yours. And I was brought up Catholic. You were brought up Catholic. Um, I mean, what what was your practice growing up? Did you have one, or you know, what were some of your experiences?
1: I think spirituality came knocking very early on in life but I think I've only realised that looking back but when I look back I remember going to a Catholic primary school and spending a lot of the lunch times in the adjacent church talking to God and I had my own I guess, form of who God was. He was funny. He was, you know, always making jokes, ever loving. And I just had a really great time with him. But what I was being taught about God wasn't necessarily aligning. And so when I look back, I think I developed my own version of what my religion was a long time ago. I also had spiritual experiences, you know, going back to when I was nine years old, looking deep into nature and feeling the whispers of a voice. So I'd say my my spiritual awakening happened really, really early, but not consciously till I was probably in my 20s.
0: Well, I read that in the book where you describe having conversations when you were really young with God and that he was very funny and chatty. And I thought, wow, what a great introduction. Because for, for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, there's a little bit of fear there too, because I, I remember – going through the first you know my first communion and confirmation like all the rituals that that you get to do and i remember i guess i was 9 or 10 at first communion and going into the the booth and then the door slides open you know and there's there was a little fear there i'm like well you know what is this so absolutely you know it it's interesting how you you process you know those kinds of things and then another experience where i was i think maybe 11 10 or 11. And our neighbor had like a church camp. And I think my mother just sent us there to get us out of the house. Like, you know, we don't know what it is, but they had a big auditorium and they gathered all of these kids together. And I'll never forget this message. They go, what would happen if Jesus Christ came down right now and you were left behind, you know, the whole rapture thing. Yeah, And I was terrified. Well, my God, what's going to happen? You know? So that was another thing that was really that really stood out, like in in my early experiences with spirituality. And then as I got older, you know, and and you describe a lot of of your, um, I, not experiments, but just searching, like looking, reading, you know, trying to find out what's really going to feel right for you. And yeah. I know I definitely didn't want the fear. I, I didn't think that that was what it was about. I mean, yes. how did you deal with that? You know.
1: I think I can relate to your experience as well and I think, you know, young minds and brains in general tend to gravitate towards fear before they hear a lot of the more joyful and love messages. But definitely the thing I loved about my religion back then was the parts of God that were joyful. I loved the music in the church. I loved all of the parts that were full of joy Yet often what I was perceiving from the teachings seemed too tight for me, seemed, you know, if you don't do these things, then you're going to go to hell. And, you know, this was growing up in the 70s. So I think eventually I lost that voice and that connection to God. And as I grew up a little bit um, further from that, I started to look outside myself And outside of God for guidance. And that came in the form of, you know, we almost have this checklist of what we need to do to live a fulfilled life. So it's, you know, get good grades at school, get into a university, get the great job, find the nice boyfriend, have the husband, you know, get children, go on some overseas trips. You almost have these, you know, goals that are all external to you that I got distracted by for quite a period of time there, but it was through that distraction that I ended up having my second awakening, I guess.
0: And I love the title and I'd I'd love for you to explain that spiritually loose because it's a cute story how you kind of came up with that with with the goddesses, your girlfriends. (laughs) I'd love to go to one of those parties.
1: Yes, I've had a lot of people say that as well. So for the listeners, this is a group of friends where we have a goddess weekend Every year, and in that time, we just come together with no formality, but just with joy, pleasure, connection, and love ruling everything. And you know, it tends to get wild as well. So, you know, we all get to explore these sides of ourselves where we probably step away from our conditioning a little bit because we're such in a safe place. Space there. And there was one conversation that I was having with one of the goddesses where she was talking about, you know, how guilty she felt. She was saying, you know, I go on these trips to Tibet and I lead these meditation classes and I'm a spiritual leader, but then I've got this wild side as well. And I said to her, well, so do I. I'm spiritually loose. And the words just came out of, you know, somewhere, but what they really meant is you don't have to buy into someone else's box set of beliefs around spirituality, that you can actually be your own guru, design your own path to a divine life because I really do believe we all have distinct and different paths and I would love to see a world where we have this beautiful kaleidoscope of everyone being joined together in the search for meaning, love, connection and their spirituality, but doing it in all different ways. And it doesn't have to be tight. It can actually, you know, I believe spirituality happens through our bodies, but we've become so tight that the more we can loosen up, the more we can listen to our own unique messages coming from our body.
0: That's such a great message. And I wanted to ask you about that specifically, because I've heard some other spiritual teachers or authors say that it may be disrespectful to be like a, quote, religious tourist or an appropriator. You know, for example, like my husband is Jewish. I mean, he's actually a Jewish atheist, to be honest. Yeah. But um every Christmas and the holiday season you I like to light the candles of the menorah and I like to have him do the blessing prayers and I also have a Christmas tree and I kind of like the whole the whole idea of being able to take from things but I still want to be, you know, respectful of that and then yep. I spoke to another author who said we were talking about traditions and she said that it was very hurtful to her as an indigenous person to use the act of smudging with sage, you know, to clear the air, to clear bad, you know, vibes or juju or whatever you want to call it, and that she felt that it was appropriation and and something that indigenous people consider sacred to their ceremonies. And I felt kind of guilty and and bad about that because I mean I've used sage before and mm. in my own in my own use of it, it's it's meant to. You know, to clear things, to clear a space, to set an intention. So I Absolutely. feel like I'm kind of using it in that way. But I felt bad that in in her eyes, mm. she she felt differently. And I, I'm I'm sure you know everyone's entitled to their 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 opinion. But how do you feel about that? Like building our own mm. spiritual practice, practice, but yet still being respectful of of traditions.
1: Yes, and I mean that makes me feel sad as well. And I never want to do anything that offends. People, but I think the biggest thing that I learned in my search, and definitely the first part of my search, was all external to myself. So I have done every spiritual practice that you possibly could imagine. And, you know, I was a real sort of healer hunter, shopping around for the answers. And I did find little pieces of those things that I then incorporated into my own spiritual journey and those what I also found is that there are many things that all spiritual and religious traditions hold in common at their core and then I think from that they may engage in it in all different ways. I feel like if for me if I'm being respectful for all those different practices and um what they mean and being true to that at the core that sits okay with me.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense because yeah, you're right. You don't want to hurt somebody's feelings no. or in that way, but if you're doing something that's meaningful to you, I guess it's in the intention, right? Maybe that's,
1: it's all the in key. the, it's all in the intention. And I think what I'm observing is a lot of practices that existed in our indigenous cultures, that existed in ancient feminine tribes, they're all coming back to have some extreme relevance in the modern world. And I think that's just a really amazing and great thing. And any of these practices that can get people on track to really leading a fulfilled and compassionate and empathetic life is a great thing. There's a great
0: quote that has been attributed to Buddha, but as I was did a little research before we talked. It may not have actually come from Buddha. I'm sure it's something people have heard before. Peace comes from within. Do not seek it without, mm-hmm. um, which is definitely probably a Buddhist uh, philosophy or, or tenet in some way. But do you think that's kind of the main message of, of the book? Like in all of your travels and explorations that, you know, kind of wherever you go, there you are kind of
1: thing. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite quotes as well. And, you know, a similar one is from the Sufi poet Rumi who says, and I'll probably get these words a little bit wrong, but, um, you know, do not seek for love outside of yourself. Just remove all of the obstacles that you've set up against it internally. And I think that's very true in the first phase of my journey. Well, there probably was three phases. There was the phase of I will just get the material things and that will achieve fulfillment. I very quickly saw that all of those external things on the to-do list won't bring happiness, won't bring fulfillment. Um, Probably the next phase, I looked at what everyone else was doing in the spiritual area and just started adopting everything. And then the third phase, I really connected back to the fact that I have a voice inside me, a map for my own spirituality that is guiding me every single day, but I've built up so much against it. And, you know, one of those things on the most basic level is that we are very rarely listening to our bodies because our minds are so active. So we have 70,000 thoughts a day, 12,000 internal conversations. How do we ever hear the whispers of our soul, our body's intuition, when we're living the, you know, the life in our heads. But then what I also discovered, and this was around how do we access our body's wisdom is that we have so much emotional debris in ourselves. And until we can look at healing that excavating that it's very hard to get to that map of our own divine life.
0: And you talk about the body a lot throughout the book and in chapter six, you talk about making peace with your body, and I, I think that's so important, especially for women. Although I know probably everyone can admit to times of you know being overly critical about their weight or their appearance, or even their their station or where they are in life. You know, like I should be making X amount of money, I should be doing this. And I mean, what are some ways that we can make friends or have peace? you know, first physically, like with our bodies. I mean, this is what we have to work Mm. with, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yes, it's interesting because I think, and as you say, it's for everyone, but as a girl growing up, there was a lot of body shame. I think, you know, every girl struggles with body image. I then went on to develop a couple of health conditions that I got very angry at my body about. And this is the thing that if you believe, as I do, that our paths are held deep within ourselves and our body, our body's not going to talk to us when we have the constant um, criticism of it, when we haven't developed a healthy and loving relationship. So the first place I went to was just to cut out all of the negative self-talk you know, and I would observe from the moment I woke up and looked in the mirror, there was a full-on criticism about, you know, there's another grey hair or at the time, you know, um, something just doesn't look right, whatever it might be. But all throughout the day, if we were to print out some of the messages that we send to ourselves, so if that could get transcribed and shown to us, we would probably be quite shocked at how often we're criticizing our body and so the very first thing for me was to develop a loving dialogue with my body to give it space and actually listen to it so i definitely grew up in a world where emotions weren't very you know welcomed in in growing up and now if my body If emotions start to come up through my body, no longer will I numb them. No longer will I push them down and start overanalyzing something, all of these tricks that we have. But I will really give it space to listen to my body. So I guess it's really treating your body like your body's your best friend. And that can be everything from how you speak to it. It can be through to how you soothe it, how you look after it, what food you give your body, whether you get massage and body work, all of those things. But just asking yourself the question, if my body truly is my best friend, this temple that holds all of my spirituality, am I really worshipping it? And what would that look like for me? And for everyone, it's probably something different.
0: Right. And we're so, uh, we, we I, maybe we're just conditioned to just, you know, achieve, achieve, go, go, and and not listen to our bodies. And that's when we start having problems. And and a lot of times it's only until we're feeling intense pain, you know, or we're, we're nauseous and have eating disorders, all the other horrible things that we do to ourselves. And it shouldn't have to come to that point. I mean, and I find myself doing this, you know, where if in the middle of the day, if I need to lay down for 10 minutes, it's okay, you know, Give yourself that permission. And so often we don't do that.
1: Absolutely. That is just absolutely critical. And I think this was my biggest wake up call that I just wasn't in my body. I was walking around disconnected at the head. So living my life through thinking, through analysis, through reflecting, being everywhere but present and not just presence of mind, but presence of body. So that really is about am I feeling myself breathe? Can I, am I actually conscious of every breath going in and out of my body? But also what's my body saying to me right now? And, you know, dealing with a couple of health conditions, it's been really interesting to see the more I get present with my body, the more I can tell every sugar level or whatever's going on for me because I'm now in communion with it. But that definitely wasn't the experience for probably the first half of my life, but yeah, being in your body and as you say, letting your body run the show, not your mind, because we wake up and our mind says, you're hopeless. You better achieve a lot of things today. You haven't done anything this week. Who are you? Um, That self-critical voice comes in. I've learned to wake up and of course I have appointments and things on, but to say to my body, what do you need today to feel fresh to feel energized, to feel invigorated. And sometimes that is turn around, <laughs> drop the kids at school, turn around and get back into bed and have a good snooze. Other times it's get into the ocean, get deep into nature and just revitalize me a little bit. And whenever I follow my body's signals, and sometimes that is by choosing pleasure instead of work, it always leads to better outcomes.
0: You're so right. And you know, I really think that. Europeans, Australians, I think everybody but Americans has kind of got a grip on that. We're the worst. And uh I, I think it's it's just something that we really need to work on. I mean, we don't even want to take a week off, mm. you know? And mm. then you look at people in, in France and Germany and they're just luxuriating with a month off. I don't even know what I would do with a month off. I mean, I would love it, but I'm I'm hoping that people are starting to pay more attention to those things and and that will change. And even now, you know, I'm seeing more companies are going to four day weeks and and things like that. So the culture is starting to change. And hopefully that's one of the benefits that has come out of this collective pandemic that we've been in, you know, experiencing over the past two years that people are saying, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. This pace is is just not sustainable. That is so
1: true.
0: You know, one of the changes that that's hopefully very positive. But so the other thing in the book that I think is interesting, like you describe the stages, you know, things that we go through in life. And I think a lot of times, I mean, now that I'm a little quote older, you know, and you get some gray hairs, that that's really the time when you start reassessing or things start to shift. And maybe it's like a natural thing that happens um, like Dr. Wayne Dyer would call it like the morning and the afternoon of your life. And he did a whole program like that. And you, you talk about in the book, like your, your quarter life crisis and that, you know, things that just hit you in the middle of the head, life will just like smack you between the eyes. Like you need to pay attention to this. And and do you think some things have to kind of happen to shake you up before you really take a look at these things?
1: Yeah. Well, this is the interesting thing. So I believe if you're not looking at yourself, if you're not doing the work and really, you know, looking at coming into connection with yourself, my experience is that something will happen to put you on the path. And so for me, in my quarter life crisis, it was a marriage breakdown, and which just turned my life upside down. And you see with a lot of other people, it tends to be triggered by a health crisis, a relationship issue, a career crisis, but I would love for us all to be on kind of ahead of that to say, I don't need a crisis to get me on the right path, actually live a conscious life from the first place. And that kind of means being aware, doing the healing of your own initiative So I'm now in my midlife reinvention, I'm going to call it, because it's not going to be a crisis. And I'm definitely approaching that in a completely different way. I don't need something to knock me on a path now. But what I certainly will do will work with that phase of life. As a woman, I feel like this is my most powerful stage of life. What do I want that to look like? what kind of legacy do I want to leave? And I think, you know, for men and women, it's a really important questions to be reflecting on in midlife.
0: Absolutely. And I think getting rid of those old societal tropes, you know, you're too old. You can't do this. I was talking to my my younger brother who's 52 and he's just belaboring this. I'm 52. I'm single life's over. Why are you telling yourself these messages? is that society telling you, you know, that you're not looking like the six pack 20 year old, you know, we all had our time for that. I I didn't have a six pack at that time. I wish I would have had something close to it, but (laughs) you know, we, I think we need to throw out those old uh, societal messages that just don't fit anymore because look, we are living longer, right? Just generally. So there is a lot of, a lot of life to live you know, at, at these times and we should make the best of it, make changes if you have to.
1: That's so true. And we need to change the narrative. Yes. Society um, views aging a certain way, but we have our own destructive narrative around it. Just like you're talking about with your brother. So I've definitely been exploring how do I change the narrative to actually say, as I mentioned before, I'm in the most powerful stage of my life. I'm coming into a place where kids are getting more independent and I can focus a lot more on what I want to give back to the world, but it's all about how we look at it.
0: Right. Exactly. And make it an opportunity, not, not a detriment or not a failure. Yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to do something else. Actually my younger sister is in a big shift like that too, where she has been a teacher for like 30 years and now she's going to be able to retire and do something else. Like there's still another act. There are still more things to do.
1: Absolutely. I call it the second bloom. So, you know, really exploring. And I think I see a lot of people in midlife that start to bring back childhood dreams. It's kind of like, I always thought I'd be a, um, playwright and people exploring more of that creative side. I have recently just turned 50 last year and started playing, learning to play the drums, something that I've always wanted to do since I was a child. And I think, you know, that's really great to, at this age, not have the view that you're now being put out to pastures, but what are all of the things that I've always wanted to do and how could I maybe explore some of those because I do believe that for a lot of us we've got another career in us or we've got another artistic pursuit in us. So, yeah, very important. I
0: I think so. I think it's really important. And to do it just for the joy of it with no expectation of, uh, you know, so you're going to play drums, but, you know, you don't know if you're going to be touring in a band or anything like that. Exactly. And that shouldn't even be the goal. You know, who cares? Or if you like acting, maybe explore a community theater group or something like that or dance you know, you may not be able to be a a premier ballerina, but you could still take classes or be involved in a group or something like that, just to bring yourself more joy.
1: Yes, that's so true.
0: We definitely need more joy.
1: (laughs) I think um, as part of my search for the answers and in Spiritually Loose, I came up with 13, I guess, principles that are my manifesto for how I live my life. And one of them is around let joy navigate your ride through life, that I think if we do more things that fill us with joy, and as you say, a really good point and another one of mine is tread loosely and lightly, let go of all the expectation, let go of all the attachment about where this should be heading and just pursue things that are joyful. I think everyone's experience is when we are in that heightened joyful state we attract high-end opportunities. So I think that's a really important part of your life, no matter whether you're 20 or whether you're 60.
0: Yes, absolutely. You also mentioned in the book about you know meditation and, and your meditation practice. And I've talked to a lot of people who just believe they can't do it and they've totally thrown in the towel and they've given up. And And what would you say to those people that are listening that like, oh yeah, everybody says I should meditate, but... I just can't do it.
1: Don't let your first experience define you because I talk in the book about how when I first meditated, I nearly threw up because when I got in contact with my mind, I saw how busy it was and it really spun me out to a place where I was dizzy. What I actually did was just took it in chunks. My meditation practice first started at two minutes and I'd do that twice a day and then I would build it up to the point that I was um, eventually meditating for 20 minutes twice a day. That practice has, again, changed throughout my life because it was difficult to do with little kids because as soon as they saw someone cross-legged, they want to jump in your um, lap. So I've changed up that meditation practice a lot. But I think the biggest thing for people to also realize is that the goal isn't to have no thoughts. So we wouldn't be alive if we had no thoughts. The human brain throws up a thought every six to ten seconds. The practice of meditation is to see the thought, not be captured by it, but just let it pass through and return back to whatever your point of focus is, which is breathing or, you know, you might, might be doing something where you're looking at a candle. But I think if we can put that expectation aside, it will frustrate people less because they won't be sitting there going, why can't I have no thoughts? It's not the goal. It's not, it's not physically possible.
0: No, that's true. Or you're like, you said, we would be dead if we yes. had no thoughts. Yes. So since, since you've mentioned that you've reached the magical age of 50, which I think is a very powerful thing to do. A lot of people don't get to do that. So we should be, should be happy. One thing I've noticed as I've entered into this realm, into these, these waters, that my intuition has actually, I think, gotten a lot stronger. And I've tried to be aware of that and to cultivate that and pay more attention to how I feel that in my body and, you know, to make decisions more based on on my heart than what maybe would look rational or the right decision. But, I mean, what do you think about that, you know, following your intuition and, and enhancing it?
1: Yes, I think it's so important. I think you're right. As you come to a certain age, and I was reflecting on this, I think you just care less about the external voices and what everyone thinks and what's going to happen if I do this or don't do that or make this decision, what will people think of me? You just don't tend to care about that as much. I look at my 15-year-old daughter and I I reflect back to myself at that age and think, gee, I wish you had that power at, at, at that age. But intuition is so important and you get connected to it when you get out of all of the thinking around the external voices. So I definitely believe that your intuition grows the more you connect with it. So whenever I'm faced with a choice around something, I often just go in, you know, hand on my heart and the other hand's probably on my stomach and I just go into how does that feel? So I've definitely moved from a place of what do you think about that to how do I feel? And every single time your body will give you a response to that. But first you need to be asking the question. Second, you need to be present enough to see what bubbles away for you. But I think, you know, there's not too many people who follow their intuition and then regret something. You hear more people saying, oh, I had a gut feel that wasn't right, but I didn't follow it. And now I really regret it. So I'm a big advocate. And even in business, I encourage people to use intuition as a very legitimate business way of thinking and making decisions. So in the past, we tried to script out anything that involved intuition. I think it's our greatest power and we need to bring more of that into our business and personal lives.
0: That's interesting that you bring that up in business, uh, you know, in, in meetings or presentations, big corporations. I mean, do they kind of roll their eyes when you first talk about that and then maybe warm up or are people more open now to talking about those things?
1: People are actually more open. And definitely when I teach in business, I'm teaching from a neuroscience lens or some type of science lens that when you've got that concrete information there, people are a lot more open to hearing deeper spiritual messages but I think there are some truths in life and everyone's got an experience where they've overthought something and gotten to the wrong place or where they had a gut feel and they've gotten to the right place so I think when you present some of these things when you show them how in the brain when we get to that place of almost, you know, no thoughts for a couple of seconds, how it activates an area of the brain, which gives us our most innovative ideas. When you can talk about those things, most people are really excited about it because it aligns with their personal experience.
0: Absolutely. That's so true. I'm just thinking of, of times where, I mean, I've learned most of, most of that recently over the past couple of years of learning how to not react immediately give yourself a couple of seconds, don't fire off that email, you know, don't respond with that angry text and, and pause and say, well, should I really say this, you know, and chances are you probably shouldn't, but it's, I think it's an important discerning thing to, to learn. Definitely. Sometimes and it takes time.
1: It's um, yeah. It's funny that as human beings, we are never really given the operating manual for how our brain, nervous system and emotions work. But just on that point, our emotional brain is racing six seconds faster than our logical brain. So to be able to give that pause of around six seconds brings us into alignment. So we're not in deep regret trying to retract that email that was probably a little bit grumpy or whatever else it it might be. There's kind of explanations for these things. And that was one of the benefits of all my searching. I just learned so much that I think should all be put in a manual and we should be given um, as soon as we can read.
0: Yes. And I like that you've even distilled it down to six seconds. I didn't know that because we've all heard count to 10. Yep. We don't even have to do that. We can just count to six and, uh, and probably save ourselves a lot of grief. Absolutely. There's so many great um, insights and, and stories in the book. Um, another one I, I thought was good a good reminder is compassion. And practicing compassion is such a great exercise and um, I knew a, a teacher that would keep a picture of someone that they really couldn't stand you know on their desk and practice sending them love. It could be any anyone political figure of your choice um, to, to practice thinking of them as maybe as a person and having compassion and I know sometimes it seems silly or it's hard but I think we're lacking so much compassion these days for other people.
1: Yes, I think so and I think it's a really important thing and this probably circles around to the conversation we had at the start about um the smudge sticks and the whole thing of spiritual materialism where people are picking up spiritual things for their own benefit and advancement and forgetting that the reason we engage in things is because we want to bring greater connection To each other. We want to work as a whole. We want to serve each other. And this is where compassion to me becomes a really important thing. And one of my principles was around use your body as a channel to do God's or the universes or whatever you want to call it work. It's not actually just for you to say, I'm now happy or I've got everything I want, but how can we actually all connect? to evolve humanity to a different level and I think when that intention's not there you're more likely to slip into all types of spiritual materialism.
0: Yes. And the sooner we can get to that place, I think the better. Yes. You know, for for all of us. So, what do you think your plans are going to be now that the book is out? I mean, are you going to be doing some traveling and speaking or what would you like to see or what do you hope to hear when people read the book? Like what's been your favorite reaction so far?
1: I think overall just about everyone who writes in talks about how relatable it is. So how the stories they could have written for themselves, that some of the things that were going on in my mind at different um, places, they had experienced as well. And so that's what I'm really happy about that. And it's like you said earlier, we, Are all connected and experience the same types of challenges, whether we're living in Australia or America or Europe. And so I've just been really happy that people can relate to the scenarios. And probably the other comment is that people have said it's taken them on an emotional roller coaster. They've been laughing in one moment and then crying or having goosebumps in the other. And that's the whole thing. And I guess the the tone of spiritually loose i tried to keep the book humorous as well as deep um and really embracing we can be all of those things and i tried to get that through in my writing as well oh you
0: did definitely there's there's a lot of of humor you know and from from your experiences and just in the voice you know that you share just kind of jumps off the page and now that i'm talking to you in you know very much what you see is what you get yeah you know and yeah. I, I, think, I think that's going to really come across. I mean, do you think you'll be coming to the States to teach or anything like that?
1: I would love to come to the States and teach. It's not on the agenda at the moment. Actually, someone when the book was released and it was released sort of in December asked me, what do you want to be doing in a year's time? I said doing more drumming, spending more time in nature, taking a rest because I really do believe – once you you know too often we just move on to the next thing and so that was my intent for this year but i've actually found a whole range of amazing things happening this year and i'm writing my next book and funnily enough it's about what you and i have been talking about it's about thriving in the second half of your life and so yeah it looks like i'm writing another book i've got lots of exciting things going on and yeah i would love to squeeze in a trip to the states it's not planned at the moment though
0: well, hopefully at some point you'll you'll have to let me know if you make it to California. Absolutely. But the, the topic of your next book, I think that's so timely and so needed right now. We we need to know it's okay to you know, do something different, make a pivot, you know, try something new and and it's it's not too late. There's there's hope and happiness out there and and your book's a great roadmap. I think it's going to give people a lot of a lot of great ideas and things to think about. So I want to send people to your website too. What is the the best place to get in touch with you if they want to just have a comment or say hello?
1: So it's www.SusanPierce, Pierce with a S-E dot com. So yeah, I'd love people to get in touch. The book is out on audiobook as well. Um, so if you do decide to listen to it or read it, I would love to hear what you think and hear any of your challenges as well
0: is it in your voice did you read it I did oh that's great you you have a lovely accent so I'd like to listen to that
1: thank you um yeah it was that was experience in itself because the book was deeply personal to me and then narrating it it was a really amazing experience that I felt like the book was still teaching me even after it was published
0: yeah that must have been a fun experience i've only done one audio book before and it's a lot harder than people think yes and i can imagine when you're reading it your own words that might be a little bit easier but it's still a challenge
1: yes definitely
0: for sure but it's been so fun to talk to you about this i wish you so much success with the book and thank you for stopping by the podcast
1: thanks diane that was lovely lovely to connect with you